Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of 2 Samuel chapter 15? Now, if you're new with us, we um, obviously are going through 2 Samuel here on Sunday morning at, at Calvary Chapel, but the events of chapter 15 really go back to the uh, 13th chapter. And as we've been studying, we saw back in chapter 13 that David's oldest son, Amnon, raped his half-sister Tamar. And this so upset her full brother Absalom that he wound up killing Amnon and then fleeing up north to stay with his grandfather, who was the king of Geshur. Geshur is in modern Syria. And so chapter 14 deals with Absalom being brought back. And Joab, uh, David's general, finally convinces David to bring Absalom home. And so uh, David uh, sends for him, but tells Joab, look, he can come home, but I don't want to see his face. Tell him to go back to his house, but I don't want to see him. So Absalom came home for the next two years. David refused to see him. And uh, this got Absalom so upset that he decided to uh, rebel, lead a revolt against his father. Now listen, we studied this last week. I'm not laying all this at David's door. Absalom was a, was a pretty big narcissist and um, opportunist. I think the seeds of rebellion were already in his heart. I think he always felt he could do a better job than his dad at being king. And this just gave uh, him the, um, uh, the motivation to go ahead and to organize this revolt. And so we saw in chapter 15, the first 12 verses where Absalom leads this coup. Well, that brings us this morning to chapter 15, verse 13, which says, Now a messenger came to David, saying, The hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom. So David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, or we shall not escape from Absalom. Make haste to depart, lest he overtake us suddenly and bring disaster upon us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. Now, David, being a seasoned warrior, doesn't want to engage Absalom in battle until he first knows how many of his soldiers are still loyal to him and how many have defected to Absalom's side. So he wisely withdraws from the city so he can regroup gather his loyal troops, and plan his strategy. But also, he doesn't want to risk the lives of hundreds of innocent people in Jerusalem because he knows that Absalom won't hesitate to kill as many as he has to to get to David. And so David willingly capitulates to Absalom's revolt by leaving the city, by abandoning the throne to protect the citizens of Jerusalem from harm. David was a true shepherd. It's all about the sheep. So verse 15, And the king's servants said to the king, We are your servants ready to do whatever my lord the king commands. Then the king went out with all his household after him, but the king left ten women concubines to keep the house. So David's um, household servants, those were the ones who served him there in the palace, affirmed their loyalty to him. We're with you, David. Wherever you go, we're going too. And we read also, though, that David left ten concubines behind to manage the household in his absence. Guys, a concubine was basically a legal mistress, for a lack of a better term. She had some rights of a wife, but was not a full wife, and they were usually brought into the harem for pleasure. And so in addition to the many wives that David already had, he seems to have had many other women that he acquired for sexual pleasure. Now, that indicates to me something about David that doesn't come through clearly in the story, but here's how I feel. I feel that given his, over the last few chapters, given his affair with Bathsheba, 
the fact that he multiplied wives to himself, the thing that God forbid the kings of Israel from doing in Deuteronomy 17, verse 17. And then the sad fact that we read here that he had at least 10 concubines, probably many more. It says to me that at this point in David's life, he seems to be living in the flesh more than walking in the spirit. And that's just my take on it. Now, apparently he thought that he could leave these 10 concubines safely behind to take care of the household in his absence. That was naive, and it will be used against him, as we're going to see. But verse 17, And the king went out with all the people after him and stopped at the outskirts. This would be the outskirts of the city limits, right on the border of the wilderness. Okay, So he stops uh, at the outskirts, then all his servants passed before him, and all the uh, Carathites and the uh, Pelathites and all the Gittites, 600 men who had followed him from Gath, passed before the king. So David stops on the outskirts of town, right on the border of the wilderness. He stops to count his troops and to see who he's got in the way of soldiers that will be able to uh, go into battle against Absalom. These were his uh, closest soldiers. Uh, including the palace guard, uh, which was always very loyal to the king, usually. Uh, also, we read here that there were the uh, Carathites, the Pelathites, and those were called Gittites. They were men from Gath. In fact, all of these guys, Carathites, Pelathites, Gittites, they were all, listen to me, Philistines who had defected from their land and leaders to join up with David in his cause. David had spent some time... Uh, in the area of uh, the Philistines when he ran from Saul. And no doubt, some of the men of the Philistines uh, saw David, his courage, that God was with him, that his men, uh, they were victorious wherever they went, and they decided that David was the man to follow, so they defected from uh, the land of the Philistines, their homeland, and they joined forces with David and became, listen, some of his fiercest warriors and bodyguards. It's interesting that these Gentiles defected to David's side and became some of his most loyal soldiers when his own brethren, his own countrymen, many of them had turned against him and had rejected him. Take a good look at that, okay? Because that's the story of the New Testament church and the son of David, Jesus Christ. How that he came to his own, but his own did not receive him. And at one point he began to turn to the Gentiles. Yes, there were Jews who had gotten saved, but as the church began and began to move forward, it's obvious that the church was comprised mostly of Gentiles. The Bible says that we are, as the church of Jesus Christ, the soldiers of Christ. He's our commanding officer. And Paul uses the military metaphors throughout his writings to talk about the fact that we are soldiers of Christ. We need to be focused. Uh, a soldier, if he's going to be victorious, can't be entangled with the cares of this life. You can't have your mind half in the world, half in the kingdom. You've got to be all in, right? So, so we know that. And uh, it's interesting that, you know, here are these defiled Philistines come over to David's side and become his most loyal soldiers, the ones that he is turning to now during the, the um, revolts of his own son. One of these guys stood out. A Philistine that had lived in the city of Gath, which made him a Gittite. We read in verse 19, Then the king said to Ittai the Gittite, Why are you also going with us? Return and remain with the king, with Absalom, for you are a foreigner, and also an exile from your own place, your own country. You've left your own country to join me, but verse 20, In fact, you came only yesterday. 
Should I make you wander up and down with us today? Since I go, I know not where. Return and take your brethren back. Mercy and truth be with you. Now, many believe that Ittai was um, a commanding officer in the Philistine army, possibly even a general, and who just a day earlier had defected over to David's side with his men. And uh, David encourages him to take his soldiers, because he led a group of men that they all defected to David's side. He encourages Ittai to take his men back uh, to Jerusalem, back to Absalom, who is now the new king. And uh, says to him, look, you've just left your homeland to defect to me, but I don't know where I'm going or what's going to happen to me. You know, Absalom's king now. Why don't you go ahead and just stay in Jerusalem with him, all right? And Ittai answered in verse 21. He said to the king, as the Lord lives and as my Lord the king lives, surely in whatever place my Lord the king shall be, whether in death or life, even there also your servant will be. Now, guys, that is one of the great pledges of loyalty you'll find anywhere in the pages of Scripture. Here this uncircumcised Philistine, who has made a commitment to David, tells him, David, you're my king now, and I pledge never to leave you nor forsake you. If it means life or death, I will remain by your side, that wherever you are there I will be also. You know, Charles Spurgeon commented on this, saying that, you know, the uh, commitment of loyalty that Ittai made to David is remarkable and inspiring, and how that it should be second to our commitment that we have made to the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, every one of us has, has committed ourselves to our new king. Who is the old king? The devil, self, whatever. But we have committed ourselves to our new king, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that commitment has to be all-encompassing. It has to be the kind of commitment that says, Lord, I'm in this for the long haul. Peter said it well when he said, where else can we go? Only you have the words of eternal life. So, Lord, when I, when I committed myself to you, this was not a superficial thing. Lord, life, death, whatever it might be, Paul even said, uh, to live is Christ, to die is gain. That's the heart of a true a disciple a soldier of Christ. And Spurgeon said it well when he said, look, we have to have the same kind of commitment when we follow our Lord Jesus Christ. It can't just be fair-weather Christianity. When things are good, I'm going to follow the Lord. If he asks me to do something I don't want to do or leads me into a place that's not pleasant, I'm going to forsake him and, and go back to the old. No, it's all in or nothing at all. Either he is the Lord of all or he really isn't Lord at all. And so verse 22 so David said to Ittai, okay, well then go cross over. All right, come on. And Ittai the Gittite and all his men and all the little ones who were with him. So the, all their families came, of course. You didn't leave, couldn't leave their families back in Philistia. So they, they all came, crossed over, verse 23. And all the country wept with a loud voice, and all the people crossed over. The king himself also crossed over the brook Kidron, and all the people crossed over toward the way of the wilderness. Now, I want you to put yourself in David's shoes for a minute. As he is watching this procession of people, those who are loyal to him, that they're leaving Jerusalem and they're now heading toward the wilderness, the very wilderness he had spent so many years in when he was running from Saul, remember? Well, it was no doubt the blackest moment of his life. Coupled with the fact that it was his own son who had betrayed him, who was now trying to kill him. I mean, it created a pain so deep in David's soul he never really got over it the rest of his life. In fact, he wrote about this experience in at least half a dozen psalms, uh, not the least of which is Psalm 55. But before I, I read part of that, I want to just say this to you. 
that uh, it was a time in David's life that was a very dark time, a time full of anguish for him. In fact, it even says he crossed over the Kidron Valley, right? It's interesting how the Holy Spirit will put little things in here for our learning. The word Kidron in Hebrew means dark. He passed through the Kidron Valley. He was literally passing through a dark valley through this experience, much like we experience when we're in a place where we don't know what's going on, what God is doing. Things are falling apart. The future is uncertain. Uh, we've been betrayed by people closest to us. We are hurting inside so deeply. We're going through a dark valley. And David talked about this experience in Psalm 55. I won't read the whole thing to you. So verse 1 says, listen to my... Now remember, now he's writing this uh, as he is now fleeing from Absalom, his own son. And all of Absalom's armies, they used to be loyal to him, to David. Listen to my prayer, O God. Do not ignore my cry for help. Please listen and answer me, for I am overwhelmed by my troubles. My enemies shout at me, making loud and wicked threats. They bring trouble on me and angrily hunt me down. My heart pounds in my chest. The terror of death assaults me. Fear and trembling overwhelm me, and I can't stop shaking. Oh, that I had wings like a dove. Then I would fly away and rest. I would fly far away to the quiet of the wilderness. How quickly I would escape far from this wild storm of hatred. Confuse them, Lord, and frustrate their plans, for I see violence and conflict in the city. Its walls are patrolled day and night against invaders, but the real danger is wickedness within the city. Everything is falling apart. Threats and cheating are rampant in the streets. It is not an enemy who taunts me. I could bear that. It is not my foes who so arrogantly insult me. I have hidden from them. Instead, it is you, my equal, my companion, and my close friend. He said, What good fellowship we once enjoyed as we walked together to the house of God. David is, yes, lamenting the fact that Absalom has turned against him, but right here in Psalm 55, he particularly zeroes in on Ahithophel. Now, as we said last week, Ahithophel was one of David's best friends, uh, one of his um, most respected and trusted advisors. And we read, read last time how that Ahithophel threw his lot in with Absalom. For various reasons, you can get the CD or listen online to find out why. But Ahithophel turned against David and uh, joined up with Absalom. And uh, David is saying, look, if it was just enemies that I don't really know, I can deal with that. But what really hurt me through all this, Lord, was a man who has been to my house for dinner. We walked up to the hill of God, to the house of God, to fellowship and worship the Lord together. Uh, Lord, this is what has really hurt me. And David is lamenting that. What good fellowship we once enjoyed. Uh, and now he has betrayed me. Look, he goes on to say, Let death stalk my enemies. Let the grave swallow them alive, for evil makes its home within them. But I will call on God, and the Lord will rescue me. Listen to me, guys. Betrayal is one of the most painful and difficult experiences that we can go through in life. The reason it's so painful is because betrayal can only happen at the hands of those who are closest to us, dear friends, family, uh, including and especially a spouse. I mean, the very idea of betrayal implies a level of intimacy and trust that we don't invest in casual relationships. Casual acquaintances can't betray us. They can turn on us, they can hurt us, yes, but they can't betray us because we haven't made ourselves vulnerable to them. 
We haven't shared with them, you know, our deepest struggles and thoughts. We haven't shared with them painful emotions, times that we failed, we're ashamed of, that we've not shared with anybody else. There are those people in our lives that, you know, we have many acquaintances, very few real friends. Why? Because many of us are too afraid to invest that kind of intimacy in a person by opening ourselves up to them. We're, we're afraid that if they would ever turn against us, they could really hurt us knowing what they know about us. That's true. I mean, some of the stuff that people tell some of their closest friends, if those people turned against them and made these things public, would devastate them personally and professionally and emotionally. That's why we don't do it. That's why we're very guarded most of the time. However, there are people, and of course, this should be in marriage. This should be a given in marriage, but not all marriages are as intimate as sometimes people have friends that are, they're more intimate with, more open with. That's a tragedy in my mind. But um, those people that you really bring into your heart, that you really bear your soul to, they have the incredible power over you to do great damage if they turn against you. That's betrayal. And I personally think that this is what David is feeling at this time in his life, the excruciating pain of betrayal. First at the hands of his son Absalom, and then by his good friend and trusted advisor Ahithophel. I guess the only good thing that can come out of betrayal, and I've thought about this, I think the only good thing that it can come out of betrayal, it shows you who your real friends are, and those who only are, I guess, pretending to be your friends. The thing about betrayal is when uh, somebody has turned against you and begins to share things about you that you have told them in confidence, those who are your true friends will come alongside you. They will not judge you. They will pr- their heart will be more connected to you because you're human, you know, and they know that. And they want to surround you, pray with you, pray for you. You will find who your true friends are at times like this. Friends like David found with, with Ittai. Okay? And also you will find those who are really not your friends if they join those who are now speaking against you. This experience in David's life before it is over, as painful as it's going to be, is going to weed out his phony allegiances and solidify his loyal alliances. That's another good thing that will come about from this. So once again, verse 23, the king himself also crossed over the brook Kidron toward the way of the wilderness. Now, as I said earlier, This is the very wilderness that David finds himself in now that he once lived in for many years as he was uh, a fugitive running from Saul. At that time, uh, Saul was king, but God had promised David because Saul was not a man after his own heart, and David was, that God was going to take the kingdom away from Saul and give it to David. When Saul found out about that little promise God made to David, he made it his mission in life to pursue David to kill him, to remove him as a threat to his throne. This went on for 10 years as David was now in the wilderness uh, with a group of guys that joined themselves to him, 600 in total. And for 10 years, David was on the run until God fulfilled his promise and made David king. Many years has passed. And now David is back in that same wilderness once again, running from Absalom this time, who wants to kill him to keep him from returning to Jerusalem to retake the throne as king. Look, how often we find God in a certain place. And maybe it's a physical place like church. Uh, Somebody invites you to church and you're going through a tough time. Maybe you say, okay, yeah, uh, maybe I will give church a try. And you come to church and the pastor's a good guy. He gives you the gospel, tells you about the love of God, salvation through Christ, and you accept Christ right there. You have now found God in a sense, all right? You're saved. Or sometimes you're not, it's not a physical place so much, but a, 
a place you're in emotionally. You're devastated because of some circumstance. Maybe your marriage has fallen apart. Uh, maybe you've gotten bad news from the doctor that you've got a serious disease. Uh, maybe friends have turned against you. Or you're just feeling lonely and, uh, and, and so on. It's in those places that God will often meet us and bring us to himself. And what happens? We are filled with joy. In fact, all the negative emotions we experience that brought us to that place where we met Christ don't even matter anymore. Because now we're filled with joy and hope and peace. And we go on our way full of the presence of God and the joy of the Lord, right? But often the farther we get from the place where we first met him, the colder and more, not with everybody, but with a lot of Christians, Often the farther they get from the place where they first met the Lord, the colder and more formal their relationship with him becomes. And when that happens, the Lord either calls them, calls us, or forces us back to our personal Bethel, to the place where we first came to really know him as our God. Of course, Bethel is a reference to the experience that Jacob had with the Lord when he was in the wilderness running from his brother Esau. The wilderness, okay, is where Jacob met the Lord. What happened? Well, Esau was pursuing Jacob to kill him. Why? Well, if you knew Jacob, you didn't, that pretty much answered the question. Everyone wanted to kill Jacob, right? Uh, but he was a schemer and a conniver. And he, with the help of his mom, he had schemed his brother's blessing away from him. And Isaac gave it to Jacob, thinking he was Esau. You can read the story in the book of Genesis. And when Esau found out that Jacob had stolen his blessing, because Esau was the oldest, they were twins, but he was born first, he said, I'm going to kill that guy. I'm going to kill him. His mom said to Jacob, you better get out of town. Go to your uncle Laban's house in Padanaram. Hang out there for a, a week or so until the heat blows over. So Jacob takes off for Padanaram. He comes to the wilderness. He's all alone. He's got to sleep in the open, on the, on the ground, out in the open, grabs a rock, Pulls it up, uses it for a pillow. It's got to be a miserable experience, right? And there he has a dream, a vision of a ladder that, that is on the earth, extending up into the heavens, with angels going up and down on it, and God Almighty standing at the top. He calls the place Bethel. Beth means house, El means God. Bethel means the house of God. He calls that place the house of God and says, I had no idea God was in this place. I believe that's where Jacob really met the Lord. I, he was a Jew. He knew the God of Israel, who he was. But a lot of people grow up in church and not really know the Lord. They know who he is, but they don't really know him personally. I think that at Bethel, Jacob finds the Lord. I think he's really saved now. Well, he goes on to potting around what was supposed to be a week or two turned out to be 20 years. And Jacob, who by his name means schemer and conniver, he meets his match in old Uncle Laban, as we study the book of Genesis. Laban is the, is the conniver of connivers. And he really mistreats Jacob over the 20 years. And uh, Jacob knows the time has come to leave. He's got two wives, both of which were Laban's daughters. He's got many flocks and herds because God has blessed Jacob's flocks while he was at Uncle Laban's house. He's got a lot of kids, Laban's grandchildren. He knows Laban is such a rotten guy. If he asks him, look, tells him, look, we're leaving, we're going to go back to my homeland, he knew that, that Laban would strip him of everything, his wives, his kids, his livestock, and send him away empty-handed. So he has to escape under the cover of darkness. He eventually comes back to Bethel. Interesting how God often brings us back to the place where we first met him. 
And here, Jacob renames the place El Bethel, which means the God of the house of God. See, they, uh, Jacob's relationship with God had just deepened. In Padanaram, he learned that worldly treasures are not worth really anything. He learned that, you know what, it's only God that matters. Comes back to Bethel, renames it El Bethel, the God of the house of God, because it's no longer about a place, it's about a person. So a lot of people, when they get saved, remember exactly where they were sitting in church. What church it was, where they were sitting, the time. I'm not putting that down. But they want to kind of re-experience God. They go back to that church, sit in that place at that time. To me, that indicates your walk with God isn't as deep as it should be. Because honestly, when you really know him deeply, it's not about a place, it's about a person. I don't need to worship God here. Even if this is the place where you met him, where you first got saved. He doesn't live here. Sure, he's here when the saints are here. But anywhere you are as a child of God, he is. And when you really get to understand that and, and bring it into your heart, it's all about the God of the house of God. Not just the house of God, the place I found him right? But the wilderness is where Jacob first found God and where he learned a deeper walk with God. And I personally think, guys, that God allowed David to be driven back into the wilderness as he was running from Absalom in part, listen, to revive David's walk. You see, all those years in the wilderness when he was a fugitive from Saul, David had to stay close to God every day for provision, for protection. You know, adversity is a way of keeping us on our knees and close to God, doesn't it? None of us really enjoys the thought of adversity. But as you look back, you always enjoy and rejoice in the consequences, the fruit of adversity, because it always keeps us close to God. It, it takes us to a new level in our relationship with God, keeps us on our knees and close to God, which keeps our walk vibrant and alive, really. But during the last 20 years that David has been king, he has known nothing but prosperity and comfort and peace. Well, those things don't make for a vibrant and close walk with the Lord. When you've got to trust God for your daily bread, and where you have to trust God that today Saul's not going to catch me and kill me because God's protecting me, when you're living in that state of constant dependency upon God, it's going to keep you close to the Lord. Prosperity has a way of taking us away from God. Prosperity tends to breed apathy, apathy, carnality, carnality, apostasy. This is the very thing God warned Israel to guard against when he was about to bring them into the promised land. Now, they had spent 40 years in the wilderness. You can read about this in Deuteronomy chapter 8. God tells them, look, this wilderness time, that was preparatory. I purposely brought you all these years in the wilderness to teach you dependency on me, Trust in me, I can provide your needs, I can protect you from the poisonous serpents and the scorpions. He mentions that in Deuteronomy 8. Uh, you know, that I provided the, the manna from heaven and water from the rock. It was in all those years in the wilderness, you grew in your faith toward me. You got to know me in a deeper way. Now be careful, because I'm going to lead you into a land flowing with milk and honey. A prosperous land. You're going to inherit houses you didn't build. You're going to inherit wells you didn't dig. You're going to inherit crops you didn't plant. Be careful, because if you're not careful and remain close to me purposely, well, you're going to drift from me. And you're going to begin to think that 
your great diligence gave you all this wealth. You're going to begin to forget about me. He said, I brought you all these years to test you, listen, and humble you. And guys, I believe that was exactly what God was doing with David. He was humbling him by taking the throne from him and bringing him back to the very place where he had first learned to really trust the Lord with all his heart. He was close to the Lord in his walk. Uh, he learned constant dependency upon God every single day, the wilderness. And when I say the wilderness, I'm talking about trials, adversity. I'm talking about any circumstance where you're maybe feeling alone, forsaken, depressed, discouraged, the future's uncertain, whatever it might be. That's a wilderness period. It's not pleasant, but it will drive you to your knees if you allow it. And the benefits will be incredible. Well, somebody said, adversities will make you bitter or better. You can turn against God and say, why am I in this wilderness? God, I'm, I'm leaving. That's it. Well, you know, that's your choice, but that's not the best way to use adversity. Let it drive you to your knees, drive you closer to God. Uh, God has used the, used the wilderness often to teach us how to walk with him and to teach us to grow in our faith with him. Whether you're talking about Moses, who God had raised up to be a deliverer, but first uh, made him uh, spend 40 years in the wilderness, the backside of the desert, where he taught him how to be a shepherd and a leader. Or you're talking about Israel, as I just said, spent 40 years in the wilderness as well, learning how to trust God and be dependent on him. Or you're talking about David right here. Or Paul the Apostle in the New Testament, who spent three years in the wilderness of Arabia. God was preparing him before he sent him to be the greatest apostle that has ever lived, the Apostle Paul. All of them learned valuable lessons of faith and dependence upon God in the wilderness. So verse 24, there was Zadok also and all the Levites with him, bearing the Ark of the Covenant of God. And they set down the Ark of God, and Abiathar went up until all the people had finished crossing over from the city. Then the king said to Zadok, carry the Ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and show me both it and his dwelling. God wants me back, I'm gonna, I'll see it again, and I'll be able to go to the tabernacle and worship the lord but if he says thus i have no delight in you here i am let him do to me as seems good to him so guys zadok was one of the priests and of course the levites were the ones that served god in the tabernacle later the temple uh, one of their jobs was to transport the ark of the covenant uh, which they now brought to david because in their minds he was the rightful king therefore the ark belonged with him also, Abiathar, the high priest, joined David as well. So the spiritual community of Israel was loyal to David. But David, guys, was a broken man at this point. There wasn't much of any fight left in him. Why? Because of guilt. God had forgiven him for his sin with Bathsheba and then having her husband murdered so he could marry her, uh, Bathsheba. God had forgiven David. But as so often is the case when we sin, God forgives us but we don't forgive ourselves. And the guilt of what we have done that we can't let go of, well, the devil uses it quite effectively to take the wind out of our sails, to demoralize us spiritually. We, we don't feel the confidence to be a conqueror for Christ. We just feel like a beaten down, worthless failure. And the devil's got us where he wants us. Now, David is going to get his second wind. We'll keep reading. But right now, he was a broken man, and um, he just simply tells these folks, take the ark back to Jerusalem where it belongs. After all, it's not the ark of David, it's the ark of God. 
It belongs in the tent of meeting. And at this point, guys, David fell fully on the sovereignty of God by saying to these men, look, if God wants me back, I'll be back. But if this is a judgment from him to end my reign, and he is not going to bring me back, so be it. My life is in his hands. Lord, do with me whatever seems good to you. Now, there is actually something very good and something that we could learn from in what David does here. He falls on the sovereignty of God when he really doesn't know what to do. He doesn't know God's will in this situation. Is God going to bring me back? Is God going to, is this it for my reign, my ministry? There are times when we really don't know where God wants to take us or what he's doing. So for us to fight for what we want could be counterproductive to what he wants. So wisdom says you fall on God's sovereignty. You basically say, Lord, my life is in your hands. I, I don't know what's going on. I, I don't know if this is a, a judgment for sin in my life or uh, you're teaching me something through others uh, coming against. I don't know. But Lord, I fall on your sovereignty. My life is in your hands. You do with me whatever seems good to you, and I will rejoice in your will. That's pretty liberating, isn't it? Just giving it over to God. So let's finish the chapter. Verse 27, the king also said to Zadok the priest, Are you not a seer? Which means a prophet, really. Return to the city in peace, and your two sons with you. Now he's talking both to Zadok and Abiathar. Each of them has a son, and so he's really talking to both of them. Uh, return to the city in peace and your two sons with you, Ahimaaz, your son, and Jonathan, the son of Abiathar. See, I will wait in the plains of the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. Therefore Zadok and Abiathar carried the ark of God back to Jerusalem, and, and they remained there. So David went up by the ascent of the Mount of Olives and wept as he went up, and uh, he had his head covered and went barefoot, and all the people who were with him covered their heads up, and went up weeping as they went up. This is a, a very deep procession of mourning. Mourning. Verse 31, Then someone told David, saying, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, I pray, turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. Now it happened when David had come to the top of the mountain, where he worshipped God, there was Hushai the archite coming to meet him with his robe torn and dust on his head. Now Hushai was another... Uh, valuable counselor of David's, an advisor. They were also very good friends. And uh, he's, he's coming with a torn robe, which means he's mourning. He is for David. But David says to him, verse 33, you know, if you go on with me, you'll become a burden to me. Okay? I mean, you're not going to do me any good here with me. All right? Is what he's saying. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king, as I was your father's servant previously... So I will now be also be your servant. Then you may defeat the counsel of Ahithophel for me. And do you not have Zadok and Abiathar the priests with you there? So you'll have a lot. You'll have some uh, allies. Okay, it's not won't be just you. You got uh, Zadok and Abiathar. They're on my side too, right? Pretending to be loyal to Absalom. And um, therefore, it will be that whatever you hear from the king's house, you shall tell to Zadok and Abiathar the priests. Indeed. Uh, they have there with them their two sons, Ahimaaz, uh, Zadok's son, and Jonathan, Abiathar's son. And by them you shall send me everything you hear. So Hushai, David's friend, went into the city, and Absalom came into Jerusalem. And so David sends some of these guys that were loyal to him back to Jerusalem to act like they were defecting to Absalom's side. 
so that, you know, they might spy on Absalom and feed David intel, uh, you know, feed him intel about what was going on. Hushai, David's close friend and advisor, was to act loyal to Absalom so that whenever Absalom asked Ahithophel for counsel, uh, Hushai was to try to give counter counsel that would kind of thwart the... See, Ahithophel was a pretty sharp guy. He was kind of looked upon as an oracle of God. He was so wise. Uh, and David knew that Ahithophel would give Absalom good advice. So he said, Hushai, you're pretty clever. When Ahithophel gives uh, Absalom uh, counsel, you come with some counter thing that will, you know, cause him to maybe second-guess the counsel of Ahithophel. Maybe go with your counsel so that your counsel can mess him up and so on, okay? Mess up his plans. Now, let's leave it there for today, guys, because Lord willing, we'll pick it up next week uh, in chapter 16. But I've called this message the pain of betrayal. And I want to spend the last few minutes just looking at this because as New Testament Christians, we are going to endure the pain of betrayal. I mean, the Lord Jesus Christ endured it with Judas, David here with Ahithophel. And look, the people of God are at times going to be betrayed by people who are closest to them, people they thought were good friends, trusted confidants, and so on. How do we deal with it? How do we handle it? Let me just give you four points quickly because they're pretty self-explanatory. Uh, let me give you four things that you should write down and then consider, okay? First of all, what do you do? You pray and give it to God. Now, these are profound insights. Thankfully, you've come here this morning. Uh, you wouldn't get these insights anywhere else, no doubt. So uh, what do you do? You pray and you give it to God. Remember Psalm 55, where David is lamenting about this incredible adversity he's going through. Absalom, Ahithophel, two of his closest People in his life have turned against, betrayed him. And he's talking about how the word is spreading now, that David's evil, that God is out to get him. Absalom, he's the righteous king now. They were lying about David and putting him down. And, and, and David said in Psalm 55, verse 16, as for me, okay, that's what they're all saying. As for me, I will call upon God and the Lord shall save me. He prayed and he gave it to God. That's all I can tell you guys. Pray, give it to God. Number two, forgive them as God has forgiven you. I always think about Paul's command. This is not a little uh, suggestion. This is a command in the Greek, okay? Ephesians 4, verse 32, he says, Christians, we are to be kind to one another, tenderhearted. Listen, forgiving one another just as God in Christ forgave you. As Christians, we do not have the luxury of holding grudges against anyone. The Lord Jesus Christ has forgiven us the huge debt we owed him. Whatever somebody does against us is minor, minor, minuscule by comparison. As the Lord has forgiven us, he commands us to forgive those that have hurt us. So we don't have the luxury of holding grudges. So forgive them as God has forgiven you. Number three, do not retaliate. Do not retaliate. You can turn to this one, Psalm 109. Another psalm that David wrote during this time. Listen to what he said here. Psalm 109, verse 1. Do not keep silent, O God, of my praise. For the mouth of the wicked and the mouth of the deceitful have opened against me. They have spoken against me with a lying tongue. They have also surrounded me with words of hatred and fought against me without a cause. I did nothing to deserve this. In return for my love, they became my accusers. How did David handle it? 
Did he retaliate? Did he seek revenge? He says, no, but I give myself to prayer. He said, Lord, you see what's going on here? All these people have turned against me, speaking lies. I haven't done anything to deserve this. They're lying about me. They're all talking against me, Lord, but I will not get sucked into that. I will talk about them to you on my knees. That's how we deal with it. Years ago, my pastor taught me something that I've never forgotten. He said, if you run around being your defender in the face of false charges and criticisms, God will let you. If you let him be your defender and you stay out of it, he will vindicate your character because the truth eventually will always come out. Kind of like Nehemiah on the walls, building the walls of Jerusalem. He had a, a couple of uh, enemies, Sanballat and Tobiah, who didn't want the work to continue, had spread lies about Nehemiah. He was only doing this because he wanted to establish himself as king once he got the walls built. And so they said to him one day as he's working on the walls, they said, you better come down here, man. Word in the street is that you're going to plan to rebel against the king of Persia once you're done with this deal. So you better come down and talk with us because they had planned to kill him. And what did Nehemiah say? He said, look, there's no truth to those rumors. And I'm too busy doing the work of God to stop to take time with you guys. I'll let God take care of my character. He knows the truth. That's good advice for all of us. When people start spreading lies about you, don't run around and try to defend yourself. Just pray. Give it to God. He'll take care of it. He'll take care of it. And number four. This one's a little tricky, so bear with me. Number four, realize that you are not obligated. Listen, you are not obligated by God to rebuild the relationship. You are obligated to forgive them. But you are not obligated to rebuild the relationship. Listen, when it comes to forgiveness, as we've already said in prior studies, it doesn't mean that you are obligated to return to the place the relationship was in before the betrayal. Look, I'm not saying it's okay to hold a grudge. I'm just saying you can honestly forgive a person who has betrayed you without restoring them back to the same level of trust and intimacy you placed in them before they betrayed you. Look, if you've shared some of your deepest struggles with a person and they've betrayed you, they've, they've made it known, forgive them. But... That doesn't mean that God expects you to bring them back into that level of trust that they once had. They betrayed you, okay? Now listen, this applies to a friend. A spouse is different. Since in the eyes of God, you are one, you're living under the same roof. Marriage, by its very definition, is the most intimate of all human relationships, a relationship that is built on trust. And when it comes to restoring trust that has been destroyed in marriage because of infidelity or uh, some other deep betrayal, remember this, that with God all things are possible, but it's going to take time. It's going to take time for trust to be rebuilt. I'm not saying it's impossible to rebuild it, especially in the case of marital infidelity. I've seen many marriages that have weathered the storm and worked hard and uh, have rebuilt that trust. It's going to take time and here's what needs to happen quickly first of all the person who was guilty of the betrayal the one who committed the adultery has to first be willing to acknowledge what they did was wrong say well isn't that obvious it should be do you know how many people over the course of my ministry how many guys will say committed adultery on their wives and what do they do they turn around and say well it was your fault i slept with that woman if you had been a better wife to me blah 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 girls if your husband has committed infidelity on you and begins to go that route, turn it off right now. He's not ready to reconcile. Don't ever take responsibility for somebody else's sin. This is his sin. He needs to come clean. 
He needs to take responsibility, as they say. He needs to own it. It's not you. It's, don't ever let a man say, well, you know, if you had been a better wife, I wouldn't have done what I did. He's not ready to reconcile. He's still too, way too self-focused. So he needs to acknowledge what he did was wrong. If he's a Christian, of course, he needs to confess it to God. And then he has to sincerely want to be forgiven. He has to sincerely want to heal this marriage. And guys, what, I, what that then brings with it, uh, in the case of infidelity, is he is going to have to submit to a level of accountability he may not have had to submit to in the past before the infidelity. What does that mean? Some people may disagree with me. But you know what? In this age of technology that we're living in, where we have apps on our phones where we can track each other, and we use them to see, make sure the other is, is okay. You know, my, my son-in-law uh, had my wife install one of these apps on her phone because she was going to be driving from Phoenix to Lake Havasu where they live. A lot of desert, a lot of desert area. He wanted to make sure he could track her, that she, was, you know, that she hadn't stopped somewhere, indicating the car maybe broke down in the heat. But sometimes these apps can be used when you're talking about rebuilding trust in a marriage. You say, well, shouldn't she trust me? I had a gal from first service say that after her husband cheated on him, they went to a pastor, and, he, and, the, and her husband said, I'm sorry, uh, and so on. The pastor said, well, now you have to accept everything he says is truth. You have to trust him no matter, in everything. That's not good advice. In fact, she told me that years later she found out he, the pastor was divorced. So, uh, you know, <laughs> look, for a while, while trust is being rebuilt, if he tells me he's got a meeting at such and such a place, I want to be able to track him to make sure he's at that place. Now, this is not going to go on for the rest of their marriage, hopefully. For a while, though, until a wife can really be, or a husband, because women cheat too, until a spouse can be confident that their, that their partner is really working on the marriage and they can be trusted again, okay? Also, if... Uh, you talk about rebuilding trust and rebuilding a marriage after infidelity. Of course, a weekly uh, visit to a, a Christian marriage counselor is a good idea. Maybe a, a semi-annually go to a Christian seminar, marriage seminar. These are good ways. Because you know, obviously there was a problem in your marriage that led to this, this issue. Every marriage can be uh, strengthened. Every marriage can be worked on to make it better. But let me just say this, because we're done. As I said, betrayal is a very painful thing to deal with. But it isn't impossible to get through by God's grace and strength. God can rebuild a marriage. God can rebuild trust. God can even make your marriage better than what it was in the beginning. However, if you don't deal with the feelings of betrayal that you're experiencing, you will internalize it and it will begin to eat at you every day and destroy you from the inside out. This is why the Bible says forgiveness is so important and not a voluntary thing it's a mandatory thing because god knows that if you hold on to bitterness and unforgiveness it will eat you up alive it will plant within you what the bible calls a root of bitterness remember that out of hebrews 13 and when a root of bitterness is planted in your heart your soul it will bring forth nothing but poison fruit that will wind up destroying you but what do i do i'm hurting i'm hurting i understand i understand let me give you one last thing, and we'll close. Something that I think is very powerful. It comes out of the text. Verse 30 and then verse 32. So David went up by the ascent of the Mount of Olives and wept as he went up, and he had his head covered and went barefoot. Verse 32. Now what happened when David had come to the top of the mountain, he did what? He worshipped God. 
he worshiped God. Guys, don't ever underestimate the healing power of being in God's presence and worshiping him. I'm just telling you that. Because there is something about being in the presence of God and worshiping him that kind of realigns us. It kind of refocuses us to what's important. Okay, I'm going through a very painful time. Is not my God bigger? Isn't he big enough to fix this problem? To bring beauty from ashes? To resurrect something that has died? Can't God do those things? And if I focus on God and worship him and praise him, I'm going to be in the presence of the Lord. There's fullness of joy. There is strength. There is power. I'm going to turn it over to him. I'm going to stop taking responsibility for fixing this. I'm going to say, Lord, I'll be the husband. I'll be the wife you want me to be. And I give my spouse to you to work on. And God begins to work. As long as we are submissive and we are worshiping him, God begins to work. And I have seen marriages miraculously healed when nobody thought they could be healed. They were so damaged. Because one person, just one, who was a Christian said, God, I'm going to put the commitment I made to my spouse when I gave my vows in marriage, I'm going to put them before my feelings. And I'm going to trust you. And I'm going to just let you take over. And I'm going to worship you, Lord. Uh, it might be a sacrifice of praise right now because I don't really feel like it, but I'm going to do it anyway so you're worthy. And watch God work. Watch the healing come. So, God willing, we will continue this uplifting section of Scripture in chapter 16 next time. I didn't hear any laughing. Uh, not that uplifting, but it got a lot of lessons we could learn from. All right? So we'll see that next time. Father... We thank you for your goodness and grace. We thank you, Lord, that you are with us even through the dark valleys. And, Lord, we need to trust you and praise you and worship you and draw close to you in the wilderness because that's where we are going to know you in a deeper way, and uh, that's what we want. So, Lord, thank you. We ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word. In Jesus' name, amen.